Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakota Katoa. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things with you? This is episode number 25, recorded in June 2021, and today I talk with Gemma Aburn. Gemma is a nurse specialist in paediatric palliative care at Starship Child Health here in Auckland. She also has an academic appointment in the School of Nursing at the University of Auckland. Gemma has a background working in children's oncology and undergraduate nursing education, and she has recently completed her PhD exploring staff experiences of working in children's blood and cancer centres with a particular focus on how staff maintain resilience in their work. In this episode, we talk about paediatric oncology and palliative care services in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Gemma's doctoral studies and what it means to be a work family, and she highlights the importance of including all staff and how their experiences differ, researching your own colleagues, the importance of memoing and taking time out when undertaking grounded theory, the importance of social connectedness and doing things together as a team, and the importance of providing cake for your focus groups. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and have a listen to the interview with Gemma. So today I've got Gemma Aburn with me, and Gemma works here with me at the University of Auckland, so I will have told you a little bit more about her in the introduction, but thanks Gemma for catching up with me today. This is very exciting. So Gemma, you um, don't have an ICU background as such, but what I'm really interested to talk to you today about is um, some of the work that's arisen from your PhD recently. So we'll get on to that. Um, How about we start (laughs) with the usual question. How did you get into nursing? So I guess I ended up in nursing by accident, as (laughs) lots of people do. Um, I initially, uh, when I was finishing high school, was really interested in working in healthcare. I knew I always wanted to work with children. Um, Had done lots of nannying and babysitting (laughs) as an adolescent. Um, and went to Nurse Maud Hospital and Hospice for work experience. Christchurch. In Christchurch, <laughs> yep, good Christchurch girl. Um, and I was working as a physio aide with the physio team, um, and the nurse manager came along and said, oh, would you like to do some shifts as a nurse aide? And I said, oh, my God, no, thank you. That's <laughs> so not me, not interested in the slightest and had never considered nursing as a career. Um, and so she wanted to cut a deal with me and said, well, why don't you try it for four hours? <laughs> and if you like it, you've got a job as nurse aide, and if you hate it, I won't talk about it anymore. <laughs> so I agreed to do four hours, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, at that point, I had already enrolled in um, starting Bachelor of Medicine here okay. in the University of Auckland. Yeah. Um, so I started it anyway and hated it, and so then changed to nursing. The rest is history, rest really. Is history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, did you do your nursing degree in Auckland or in Christchurch? No, I did it here in Auckland. Yeah. So I stayed in Auckland after I'd come up here. Yeah. 
so I studied my undergrad degree here right. at the University of Auckland and have never, never left. <laughs> um, yeah. And what did you do after you had completed your degree? What did you go on and um, work in? So um, when I completed my Bachelor of Nursing, I was really lucky to get a new graduate position in Starship Oncology. Mm-hmm. Um, I was super keen to work in Starship. <laughs> um and had done some work in PICU. So I have done a little yeah, bit of PICU yeah. um, as a healthcare assistant, <laughs> which I really enjoyed, but um, was kind of drawn to working in oncology and worked there for um, five years full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, did the Bachelor of Nursing Honours Programme, um, which then kind of led on to PhD yeah. um, from there. Yeah. So your real passion is oncology, nursing and paediatrics. Yeah, I guess I feel like I'm a children's nurse first and foremost um, with special interest in oncology and palliative care. Mm. Yeah, And tell us about that in New Zealand. So um, I guess from an oncology point of view, um, care is centralised for children um, in New Zealand. So we have two centres, one in Christchurch, Chalk, and one at Starship here, the Starship Blood and Cancer Centre. Um, and then there's shared care centres around New Zealand, so children will go back to their closest regional hospital and receive okay. some of their care regionally. Mm. Um, but diagnos- diagnosis and the more um, intensive chemotherapy and transplants and things mm. happen in the two tertiary centres. Yeah, so there's a lot of movement of kids around the countryside. There is, yeah. yeah. And then I guess from a palliative care perspective, what I do now, um, we have one specialist children's palliative care team in New Zealand which is based here at Starship. So mm-hmm. we see children across the Auckland region, wherever they are, be that in hospital, at home, mm-hmm. um, schools, um, or in respite facilities. Yeah. Um, and then we provide advice and support to local paediatric teams around New Zealand. Right. Caring for children with serious illness. So it sounds like a massive job. How many of you are there? <laughs> so um, from a nursing perspective, there's myself as a nurse specialist, um, and Karen Bycroft is a nurse practitioner mm-hmm. on the team. And then we have two specialist paediatricians, Emily and Ross, um, who are full-time between them. Um, and then we have a social worker, a child psychotherapist and a child psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So there's seven of us in total in the team, but it's very much a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. um, team. We work really closely together with other services around the country because we couldn't do it on our own. And how many children would be in the service at any one time-ish? So we probably have about 50 children we're actively involved with at any one time. Um, But we see children over quite long periods of time with serious illness. So we can be involved with children for kind of 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of that's episodic care. And so you have periods of intensive involvement and periods where you have less involvement mm. and they're cared for by their primary team. Mm. So, And then there's probably another 50 children that are having those periods of care from their primary team. Right. That we're not so intensively involved with. Yeah. And so do you make use of um, digital technology too? To, yeah, yeah, lots of Zoomings <laughs> going on. Yeah, and, yeah, lots of Zoom. And I guess we were starting to use telehealth a bit before COVID. Mm. Um, particularly for some of our children that live further away. Yeah. Um, but obviously COVID's helped that kind of blossom and grow. And, um, yeah, and it's a really helpful tool to yeah. use. It doesn't replace face-to-face. No. But it's helpful. Yeah. And especially in a country um, such as ours, I guess, where, you know, we're quite geographically challenged yeah. with a lot of um, health 
requirements and, and patient needs. Um, and also, particularly, I guess, with families and whānau not wanting to travel, not being able to travel often. Mm. Um, Absolutely, and I think it's a challenge for our families that live a long way away or live in mm. rural communities. But actually, even for families that live 10, 15 minutes from the hospital, if you've got a really fragile, sick child, yeah. um, you know, just talking about a child that really struggled to be in a wheelchair or get out of bed for two minutes and so actually getting to hospital for an appointment is a real challenge and so mm. I think that's where telehealth and home visits um, provide really good support for children mm. and young people in their whanau. Yeah, especially when you have to queue half an hour to get into the car park. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, wait for half or an hour to get on site just exactly. to get into the building. Exactly. Yeah. So you go out to homes quite a lot too? Yeah, so we visit children at home um, as far south as kind of the Bombays and as far mm. north as Walkworth, Gosford and everywhere in between and sideways. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I really enjoy that part of my role. Yeah. I think it's um, it changes the dynamic when you're seeing families at home and mm. um, you know, you're on their turf and um, their terms and yeah, it's really rich discussion and mm. I really enjoy that part of my job. Yeah, fascinating job. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love it. So. Yeah, happy to stay in it. Definitely, yeah, yeah, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> That's good, you've got that recorded now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I guess I came to, you know, know you a lot better through your PhD work, mm-hmm. um, which I was very fortunate to be asked to be on the um, exam committee for, um, and found it just really fascinating. So Gemma's thesis um, is titled, and I will read it out for you, um, because it's quite a long title, so it's called Being a Work Family. And what it explored was it's a constructivist grounded theory study exploring staff experiences of working in children's blood and cancer centres in Aotearoa, or New Zealand. So fascinating body of work, and, you know, you really... Are to be commended for this because it was an outstanding thesis. Why this topic? <laughs> so I guess this topic came about um, when I was working as a staff nurse on the Starship Blood and Cancer Unit. Um, and, you know, during my time working here as a staff nurse, we went through lots of really tough periods as a team. Um, there'd be periods of really low staff morale and usually that correlated with lots of really tough stuff happening for the children mm-hmm. and families we were caring for. Um, and I became really interested in why there was this cohort of staff that stayed forever <laughs> and ever and ever, um, and a cohort that was quite transient and left, but also came back. Mm. And so I was really interested in what staff experiences were. At the time, there was lots about stress and burnout, and mm. I think when you work in the area, and in ICU as well, yeah, um, not much in different. tough areas, yeah. stress and burnout is talked about lots. Mm. Um, And I knew that I didn't want to go down that path, Um, Mm -hmm. but I really wanted to kind of acknowledge my own experiences that were positive, Um, and I knew it wasn't all bad. And so I was really interested in kind of exploring this area from a resilience perspective and and understanding staff experiences. Mm. So how did you go around developing the team around you, so your supervision team, to support you to do your PhD right way back? <laughs> eight years ago. Um, <laughs> Say that quietly. <laughs> um, so I was really lucky. I had Merrin got as my supervisor for my honours dissertation, mm-hmm. and so I already knew Merrin really well. Okay. And 
um, Merrin was kind of key in encouraging me to do a PhD, and so um, that naturally happened. Mm. Um, and then Karen Hall was my other supervisor, who's a grounded theorist and a very strong children's nurse. And so it was really helpful having two very different perspectives yeah. um, to create this piece of work, I guess, mm. um, with Karen being a nurse and a grounded theorist and Merrin um, having lots and lots of research experience, not being a nurse um, and not being a grounded theorist. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it worked really well. So why grounded theory and how early on in your sort of decision, I guess, to do your PhD and choose your topic, how early on in that journey did you head down the grounded theory route? So I guess it comes back to that honours dissertation again. <laughs> and, um, it was interesting, I did the research methods course as part of the Bachelor of Nursing Honours mm-hmm. and ground theory was kind of mentioned um, but, you know, with and kind of big warnings, <laughs> yeah. don't go don't there, go there. <laughs> too hard. So, you know, me being me, um, decided I'd like a challenge. And, and I guess when I read a little bit about the methodology, it kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. And it seemed really logical and, you know, how you carried out a piece of research. Um, it really fitted, I guess, with my worldview, you know, appreciating that there isn't kind of one form of reality, that it's mm. something that's constructed. Um and so when it came to looking at this topic, I looked through a couple of different methodologies and thought actually grounded theory is going to be really helpful in exploring this topic as well. Um, and so I ended up using constructivist grounded theory. Um, and it was very much a social construction. And I think using that social constructionist approach not only reflected my own worldview, but mm. also how that team operates mm. um, you know it's a very kind of social world a multidisciplinary world where everyone's part of the team yeah. um, and I don't think you can work in any different way caring for a child and a family um, in that context and setting mm. so going back to grounded theory yeah <laughs> tell us a little bit in simple layman's language <laughs> what grounded theory is for our listeners so I guess grounded theory is a research methodology where um, your theory is essentially grounded in the data that you generate and gather. But your research process as you go along is um, constant It's constant comparative analysis. So you're doing your data generation while you're doing your analysis. Mm. So it's not, a, it's not a linear process where you start with one thing and go to the next, but you're doing them alongside mm. um, at the same time. And it, it's really helpful in building a a theory and a picture of what's happening because you're constantly going back to the data and looking and trying to make sense and understand what's happening in the data mm. and constantly constructing that theory with the participants you're talking with. Um, yeah. So going back to your study, how did that look in reality? So talk us through the process of actually undertaking your study um, using a grounded theory approach. So I guess um, when I started, it was kind of building a very broad topic around a theory. You don't start with a specific question. <laughs> um, you don't start with a specific um, hypothesis or aim. Mm. So um, I was really interested, obviously, in staff experiences, but I also wanted to include all staff mm. um, and not just focus on one discipline. So um, I looked at everyone that works in the unit, um, nursing, medical, allied health, support staff, planning staff, admin staff, research staff, um, anybody that that was employed 
in the start at Blood and Cancer Centre or in the Children's Hematology and Oncology Centre. Mm. And to start off with, um, I guess I had my own experiences, but that's all I knew. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I had experienced and what I'd seen. And so I really wanted to start with focus groups and just some general discussion to get some ideas started um, with the team um, to kind of further explore in subsequent interviews and um, focus groups. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, we had lots of discussion at the beginning as to whether those focus groups should just be discipline-focused. <laughs> you know, would, would a junior nurse talk if there was a consultant in the room or yeah. a cleaner in the room? Or And knowing what I knew from working in the unit, I thought, actually, I think this will be okay putting everyone in a room together and it was the best thing I did um, and everybody talked really openly mm. there wasn't a single person that didn't contribute talk lots um, they usually went for about an hour an hour and a half there were three of them um, and there was one focus group I remember there was a new grad who had just started a couple of weeks before being um, joining the focus group and for the first kind of 15 minutes, she was absolutely silent. Thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but um, I didn't have to do anything because actually some of the senior staff in the room said, well, I'm wondering what this is like for you and invited her to share her. And from there on in, she was very much an active participant in the group. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah, so it was really positive bringing everyone together. Yeah. Um, I believe your focus groups involve cake as well. Yes, they did. <laughs> Home baked cake every time, every time, every time. I read that, yeah, <laughs> but totally appreciated by the participants. Absolutely, and I think it really um, contributed to the focus group as well because it made everyone lots more relaxed, and yeah. there was lots of kind of laughter. You know, cake being dropped on the floor, and <laughs> people talking about having second pieces, and so it yeah. just created this really relaxed and formal environment where everyone yeah. could just share openly what their experiences were and. Um, it was interesting being a colleague of, you know, essentially researching my own colleagues. Mm. And that was something I wrote a paper about with my PhD, was looking at that relationship. And mm. I think there's lots written in the literature around the challenges to that and some of the things you need to be aware of. And certainly ethics committees, um, and particularly my ethics, you know, sort of yeah. cautioned and said, well, you need to really think about how you recruit people and you know, be mindful of this, and I was very aware of it, but at the end of focus groups and interviews, um, I just put a question and said, you know, how's it been participating? And that was one of the things that came back, is actually it was really helpful knowing mm. me previously, and, you know, someone sort of said, well, it would have been a different story if we didn't know the person, so we wouldn't have shared as much, and yeah. um, we wouldn't have said that Jim Beam was our friend, and that <laughs> we'd go home and have a wine, and, yeah. um, and someone said, well, I have to be honest and tell you exactly how it is because you know me. You know, someone that I don't know, I could just tell them what I think they want to hear. Yeah. whole different level of engagement and response and yeah. replies. Yeah. So that was really yeah. interesting. I think it is really interesting. And you mentioned, um, you know, particularly around the ethical aspect of it. And I think we're always being told and always teaching or advising that if you can be that one step removed then that's the the better thing mm. um but you know looking at your experience completely completely different so tell us about your experience as being the interviewer um of your colleagues and the paper that came out of that so um 
I guess, you know, while there were the positives, there was also my own personal reflections, and I memoed, as you do in grounded theory, frequently. But after each focus group, and I remember the first one I did feeling particularly sad, and um, particularly hearing one of my colleagues who'd really struggled, Mm. and that was the first time I'd heard that person talk about their experiences, and it's kind of like, wow, what could I have done as a colleague Mm. to support that person better? Yeah. Um, And so that, that was kind of really tough. But I think that's where memoing and reflecting on each kind of moment throughout was helpful. Um, using clinical supervision time as well <laughs> with my supervisor to go, wow, this is really hard. Yeah. Um, and does have a personal impact. Mm. But um, there were lots of really positive things as well that came from it. And so it was kind of balancing the two up. And mm. Yeah. Any tips and tricks, I guess, about, you know, you talked about um, essentially debriefing with your, <laughs> your supervisors, um, but any tips and tricks around looking after yourself, I guess, while you're doing that sort of interviewing and um, let alone your PhD? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think memoing was really helpful and just writing mm-hmm. and writing what you're hearing, but also what your own thoughts are. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole process of memoing and how you build a grounded theory is thinking about what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and what you're feeling, what your thoughts are. Um, and just putting it on paper was really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think having time out as well. Yeah. Um, from writing and doing PhD stuff in general, yeah. just stepping away break. from it, um, which is probably why it took me eight years. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it's okay. Yeah. You know, it was okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think working in clinical at the same time, mm. you know, lots of people would say, oh my God, that's like too much all at once. But actually it was really helpful because it made the research I was doing so much more meaningful. Yeah. Um, it provided a context. And it was often where I had the ideas about what was happening in my data. You know, you'd be in the middle of the office or in the <laughs> middle of the nurse's station. You'd think, oh my God, this is what yeah. it means. Or yeah. yeah. That I, you know, it's very different, isn't it? When you're still immersed in the environment, working alongside these people as colleagues as well as yeah. the interviewer, um, yeah. see it from a completely different perspective. Yeah, and I think that's also where grounded theory was helpful because after every piece of data generation I did, be it a focus group or an interview, I actually stopped and and, and transcribed all that data myself, mm-hmm. um, went through and coded it. Um, and kind of processed all that information mm. before I went any further. Mm. And so there was always an opportunity to stop and reflect and look at what was happening before you did the next one. Yeah, yeah. One um, of the benefits. Yeah, totally. Mm. So how many interviews or focus groups did you do? So I did in three the up front um, in that initial stage, and then I did um, ten individual interviews with different people, and they weren't necessarily the same people in the focus groups. Mm. Um, so some of those were um, staff working on the ward currently um, and others were some that had left and those um, interviews actually really helped shape my theory and make sense of what I was seeing in the other interviews Mm. but were tough yeah did you choose the interviewees or did they self-select um so it was a little little bit of both because with shaping up my theory I used theoretical sampling and so um, I was a little bit directed as to who I wanted to talk to next, but that generally went out as an email. Um, and actually, usually it was trying to kind of manage people wanting to participate. 
Um, and so I had... Every researcher's dream, isn't it? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> um, had this whole group of people that wanted to participate, and so I could sort of pick them mm. who fitted with what I was seeing in the data. And, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So... What did you find in the data and, you know, in terms of themes and then how did that go on to um, develop the theory? Yeah, so um, I guess the development of my theory, well, my theory was being a work family, which is the title of my thesis. Um, And what I identified was that staff, um, I guess, maintain their resilience and maintain working in the area through being a collective and being a collective that's a resilient group that is a work family. Um, and that was what we call a processual theory that staff work through, and so part of that is finding attachment to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a big process staff go through at the beginning of being new in the team, and it's like this um, period, I guess it's similar to a newborn baby, you're out in this big mm-hmm. wide world, and it's terrifying, and you know most of us still remember our first day working in the units we work in. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly remember it vividly. Um, and so, you know, staff go through that process of being new and find attachment to um, usually their manager, the first person they meet who interviews them, um, and then to um, a mentor figure who was compared to being like an auntie or an uncle. Um, and so then they're kind of supported and nurtured into the team. Social connectedness was really important and having those social connections both um, at work but also outside the workplace was really prominent in what people right. talked about. Um, we talked about things like going for walks, um, might be in a lunch break or after work, mm-hmm. um, meeting at the pub for a drink. <laughs> um, Surely that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, after work, um, you know, doing things mm, together. together. So, and I think part of that was really about getting to know each other on a human level mm. um, rather than just being professionals yeah. that work together. Um, then they were able to become part of the work family mm-hmm. um, and be a team, work together um, and manage manage their work together but also share the successes of their work and share the successes of their personal lives and share the burdens mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. work and their personal lives and the tough stuff that was happening as well. Um, and then through becoming a family they were able to have an identity both as individuals within that family and then um, as a collective mm-hmm. they had an identity. And that identity was really about their ability to make a difference to children in whānau, mm-hmm. um, but also that difference being valued and being seen mm-hmm. by the children in whānau they care for, but also by their other colleagues and management structures within a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, That's yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's really interesting too in terms of, um, you know, it's not just outward facing, it's very inward facing. Yeah. Um, the concerns and, and ideas. Mm, yeah. Definitely. And I think, you know, one of the big things that I took away from it was everyone's part of that family. Mm. And I think traditionally in workplaces or in hospital settings, um, you know, people like cleaning staff and admin staff have never really been included or thought about when we think of interventions that have been done Mm. in hospitals or even consideration that they might be affected by by the changes or, yeah, yeah. Um, And so, you know, their experiences when I spoke to them were the same as a senior nurse, a senior doctor, a staff nurse Mm. on the ward, a physio, a play specialist. And so, you know, they really valued being part of that, that work family as well. So a little bit invisible, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think they've traditionally been invisible roles. Yeah. And I guess some of the terminology and language that we use doesn't really 
help with that in terms of, you know, allied health professionals or allied staff or admin or, you know, support support staff as opposed to being seen as this collective, like you say, of everybody. Mm. Yeah. Even terminology like health professional. Yeah. You know, um, cleaning staff don't necessarily identify with that. So that's why I made the decision to use the term staff. Yeah, because it kind of refers to everyone. More generic and yeah. all-encompassing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, how can we <laughs> develop this team of staff that feels included and inclusive, and you know, important, and a family? Yeah. So I think you, you know, as I was saying before, I, it, it's really about the context, and I think it's going to be different. And I think it was different in both units. Mm-hmm. Um, not that my intention was ever to compare them. No. You know, I wanted to build a theory around the experiences of staff working in the area in Aotearoa, which is mm-hmm. why both units were included. But um, how that theory operates is different anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can see it operating in an ICU environment as well. Um, but I think really the things that are most important is that staff feel socially connected mm-hmm. and have a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that's done can be done in different ways. And, you know, some of the ideas that came out were simple things like having a shared lunch mm-hmm. or a lunch that's actually paid for and provided by an organisation, showing that they are valued and for the difference they make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, for years we've had this focus on an individual level in places that for wellbeing we need to focus on individuals. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. actually what this showed, I guess, is the value in considering resilience and well-being on a social level mm. and looking after a team Yeah, yeah. rather than focusing on the individuals within that team. Which is more challenging, I guess? You know, is it mm. easier to focus on individuals or easier to focus on a team? I, I don't know. I guess in some <laughs> ways it's easier to focus on an individual because yeah. you are... You know, and I think being part of an organisation, you feel like you've been given instructions. Mm. You know, it's like this is a cheat sheet, this is a list, yeah. what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. So, whereas on a social level, it's kind of around how do we bring people together? Yeah. How do we enable people to connect? Mm. Um, which can be more challenging, and things like our physical environment mm. don't foster that. You know, it's really hard to find yeah. spaces that exactly. all staff can meet and connect. Yeah. You have a tea room on a ward that that's five or six people, yeah. you know. And, <laughs> and half the people at home sleeping after a night shift or, yeah. Yeah, know, trying and, to find and I think we've times. also been very focused on individual disciplines, like this mm. is the nursing tea room. And, mm. um, so I think looking at that bigger picture and rather than considering interventions for individual disciplines, looking at how can we actually include everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, one thing that came up, because after I'd done my interviews in initial focus groups, I went back to senior leadership teams and did focus groups with each senior leadership mm-hmm. team and said, look, these are, this is what my theory is looking like at the moment. What do you think? Does it fit with you? And how do you see this living, you know, living and breathing in your yeah. units? Um, and they all felt that it really resonated with them and described how they operate, which was really cool. That's good. Um, and reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, some of the things that came out of that um around how they could make that happen Mm. um, were around environment and just simple things like we're actually having a lunch once a month. Staff lunch, everyone gets together and we do that. would be really helpful. Mm. But um, what's the other thing I was going to say? The other thing that came up um, 
out of that, what was I talking about before that? About uh, environment and including everyone. Yeah, oh, the other thing that came up in that was um, in medical debriefs or debriefs that happen after something really challenging, actually nursing and medical staff come but nobody else does. Yeah, yeah. And um, one team were quite open to considering the wider team. The others were like, well, we can't have cleaners there. It's medically privileged information, they can't have that. And that was a really interesting dynamic because yeah. actually interviewing some of those staff, they were the most conscious and aware of confidentiality and privacy of anyone to the point that they didn't actually discuss what happened at work and the tough stuff they saw with anybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so while they really identified as being part of the family and felt really included compared to other places that worked, mm. um, there was always this dynamic that... I guess they were the extended family. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And um, there's such an integral part of the team. Totally. Who just get overlooked. And and not intentionally. No, no. Yeah. So I think that's somewhere that we could make progress. Yeah. And then a team to be more connected and supporting our colleagues yeah. and other roles. And I think highlighting those roles, you know, I think often... Um, you know, cleaning staff are a really good example that they try to be unobtrusive and invisible um, and just get on with the job. Yeah. Um, and so really recognising them and engaging them and involving them in everything that goes on. Absolutely, because um, the reality is that sometimes they're the person that families feel comfortable talking mm, to. Mm. And so they're in that room every day cleaning that room and talking to that mum or that dad that's yeah. really struggling. With, yeah. Um, did you interview any families around how they perceived the work family? No. no. So that's something that I really am keen to do next, yeah. is look at how does this theory of being a work family and staff wellbeing and resilience, how does that mm. link to the quality of patient care we provide mm. and to the patient and family experience? Mm. How would you go about researching that? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and that's something that, I think is a project in itself mm. because there's been studies done in ICU particularly yep. looking at that relationship between quality of care and staff well-being but they've very much been centred around quantitative research mm. and the staff well-being part is looked at a quality of life score and quantitative and resilience scale yep. and the patient parts looked at um, adverse events, risk pros, needle stick injuries mm. um, and to me that doesn't fully explain that relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it would be really interesting to go and look at the literature and then you know, perhaps look at interviewing key stakeholders and look at how you'd go about doing that because I don't yeah. even know where you'd start. Yeah. But I think it would be a really valuable piece of work. Mm. Well, I mean, like you say, it's a little bit of you know, a missing link in the whole chain, isn't it? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe being able to sort of look at your theory and see whether that does contribute to different sort of patient-centred outcomes, mm. unocentred outcomes. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess it is really reflective of the model of care that we have in child health, mm. you know, around family-centred care, te tapafa, really considering whānau as an integral element, and mm. that shouldn't be any different for us as health professionals, no. as staff, really. Yeah. Um, we still need to consider our, you know, our health as a, as a holistic thing that has four sides to it and needs to be balanced. Mm. Mm. Oh, and it'll be really interesting to see what else comes out of this piece of work. Mm. Um, in the both in the units that you know you've researched, but also sort of in a wider spread. 
Mm. So how else have you disseminated your findings, I guess, and what sort of impact have they had? So um, I guess I've published the findings in the Journal of Pediatric Oncology Nursing, um, which was really exciting, um, and presented them certainly within um, national forums mm-hmm. based from Starship, that a video conference around the country, um, and the Australian New Zealand Children's Oncology Group Conference. Um, and, you know, it's been really well received, and I think people have, it's really resonated with people, mm. regardless of what area they work in. So yeah. I think it is something that's definitely relevant to other areas of health, mm. um, but also outside of healthcare. And I know I've discussed yeah. the theory with those working in secondary education and tertiary education, and it's resonated with them as well. Mm. And I guess it's that kind of identification that we're all human beings and relational beings. Yeah that need social interaction. I think that's the thing. We spend a lot of time, no matter where we work, we spend a lot of time together every day. <laughs> it's that's a little right. bit the same in this building too. Yeah. Um, and so developing those connections and support systems and, you know, the family around you, hmm. yeah, is one of those natural things, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess family, um, you know, to me is something that's familiar to everyone, although we've all got different experiences of it. Mm. That's something we can all kind of relate to and understand in, yeah. in a sense and so I think that's where using that language can be really helpful mm. for people and it's interesting after I presented it to um, the palliative care education form we have in child health one of the oncology staff came to me and she said you know for years and years working in this area we've had people tell us that you know we we're at risk of negative psychosocial outcomes and medical outcomes stress and burnouts being talked mm. about you know, things have been tried, we've talked about supervision and debriefs, mm. but she said finally there's something that kind of just describes how we how we work and how we operate and what keeps us here. Mm. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and it's just something really simple that we can all relate to and yeah. then take on board and think about how we look after each other. Mm. Mm. So developing those sorts of models and, um, you know, systems to help people support, yeah. Yeah, mm. and particularly junior staff coming in. Yeah, yeah. As well. Getting just, it right from the beginning. Yeah, and just a, an appreciation, a realization that we're all in this together. Yeah. And that we all have similar feelings and responses to the tough stuff we see, mm. and that's okay. It's mm. okay to be sad. It's okay to have a tough day. Yeah. And like you say, I think that applies everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we need to acknowledge that and be kind to ourselves. And yeah, yeah, because mm. it is—it's a tough job, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it has lots of amazing parts yeah. to it too. Yeah. It's mm. we're pretty lucky. I think so. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So what next for you then? Moving on, putting the PhD finally, getting it bound, putting it on the bookshelf. Um, being awarded your degree, which is very exciting. What's next in the journey for Gemma? (laughs) Um, So I guess I've started working one day a week here in the School of Nursing, Mm -hmm. which I'm really enjoying, Um, and hope to do a little bit more work here. I'm keen (laughs) to continue doing some research. I guess my kind of aspiration is to be a clinical academic Mm. and um, have clinical and research informing each other. I think it works really well together. Mm. I think there's a huge opportunity to grow um, research and teaching and learning in the paediatric palliative care space mm. um, yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. So that's kind of where I want to head. Um, <laughs> baby steps. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, no, that's very exciting. So, yeah, thank you for sharing your work with us today. It's been really exciting um, to talk about it again and hear all about it. But also, you know, hopefully there's a few ideas in there for people to take away. Um, and the other thing we'll do too is put some links to some of your papers in the online words cool. <laughs> so that people can have a read there too about what you found. So, yeah. Mm. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma, for your time today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Some in, awesome insights there. I really enjoyed hearing Gemma talk about how working clinical still while undertaking her studies helped her make meaning and provided context for her academic studies and also around how we should think about how we look after each other. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? And would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.